don't close your eyes. Don't close your eyes. So would you pray with me, and we'll add our agreement to what's already been spoken. Father, I love you, and I'm thankful for this opportunity to speak the word. And truly, it is a privilege to share and an opportunity. And I feel, uh, God, empowered, and I feel privileged to have it. And I do pray, as it's already been prayer, the heart and the mind, the emotions, Father, of each individual, including the speaker today, would be ready to receive the engrafted word. Challenge us and charge us today, God. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's children said, amen. I want to take a moment before I go back and just quickly reiterate last week's message for a moment to just catch you up so that we can make this a two-part message and it doesn't seem that they are so totally distinct from one another. Um, I want to tell you first of all about a very special place and a people group here in the great state of Arkansas that you're a part of and that you're a part of because you give and you give in missions and part of your missions offering goes to help us support what's called Compact Family Services in Hot Springs. Now most of us think of Hillcrest Children's Home in Hot Springs, but Hillcrest is a part of a larger family services group. Now Ashley and her husband Matt were on staff at Hot Springs First Assembly, and so they know firsthand interaction with Hillcrest and some of the other ministries there. But if you take the time to go online, you'll discover that not only do they have you know, outreach to displaced children, also to help with fostering and also to help with adoption. But they have a special ministry called the Maternity Home. And the Maternity Home is where mothers, especially single mothers that might be displaced, that have chosen to go ahead and give birth to their child, can come and they can be provided for during the entirety of their, uh, their gestation period. And during that time period, or their pregnancy, I guess, would be the better way to say it. And so during that time period, they can be taught parenting classes. They'll be taught uh, homemaking skills. They'll be also continuing their education and different things. It's very diversified. And at the end of their pregnancy, when they birth that child, they then are allowed on their own to make their own decision, whether they and their uh, spouse or potentially their boyfriend or whatever it might be, uh, if they choose to keep the child, then certainly they continue in their parenting. But if they choose to place that child in adoption, they get to actually choose with the counsel of the Compact Family Services, the parents that are going to adopt their child. Isn't that awesome? Come on, somebody. Amen. We're a part of it, right? When you give in missions, you help support that. And as uh, recently, we had one missionary came off the field, so Sherry and I diverted that fund that we've been giving recently to increase our giving to combat family services. And I think we can even do more in the future as we become aware. They're not alone. They're not the only ministry like this. How many of you know God has put it on the hearts of the body of Christ to be there and to help? The reason why I'm saying that today as we start looking a little bit deeper into the message, it's, it's exciting for us to know that there are ways and means that we can still make a difference. Even while we're waiting for laws, prayerfully hoping for laws to shift to, uh, to address the issue that I'm going to talk about, is we don't have to sit back and do nothing. Come on, somebody. Amen. So with this, very quickly, if you were here last week, I went ahead and chose to use a text in Luke's gospel, chapter number three, found in the first, second, and third verses about the ministry of John the Baptist. It was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and uh, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and Philip his brother, 
and Archelaus, his brother, I believe the scripture says, um, is another tetrarch. And then there's Annas and Caiaphas. They're the high priest. And, but the Bible says this plainly. But the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And the point that I was making is sometimes God can overstep and overlook and bypass the political leaders of the day, the trained religious leaders of the day, and God can find a man or a woman willing to speak the truth with a clear conviction. And it's our belief that God is raising up men and women that can speak and address the cultural uh, things that are taking place in our generation. Let me say this today. As I go a little bit deeper in this message, did you know are those that within the body of Christ that would label my preaching today political preaching? And listen, polit- politics is not in any capacity the driving force in my life today. But it is the word of God. Just like John, the word of God came to him. And so it is the word of God. I'm compelled by a deep conviction as I read the word of God and study the word of God. And it becomes the defining force in my life and hopefully hopefully in yours as well. So let me go with and take you on a journey for a few moments. Since man's transgression in the garden, you know, the greatest transgression that I've observed in the life of mankind is idolatry. That's the thing that when I look at biblical history and even beyond, it seems idolatry is the greatest of all transgressions. Now, idolatry does reveal something about man, and that is man has a desire. When I use the term man, I'm not talking about just in gender distinction. I'm talking about mankind. And so mankind has the desire to worship, right? There's something in almost every one of us. I think it's in all of us, but however, some temper it or some suppress it. But there's something in the heart of man that believes that there's a creator and that you are the creation. And so therefore, as the creation, you should give glory to the creator. And so, but unfortunately, man has not always had the revelation of the pureness of fellowship and communion with this, what we call the invisible God. And so man has often chosen his own means to, uh, to develop a system of worship. And you and I can call that idolatry. And man has historically been willing to chisel out of stone or to pitch with mortar and clay or to take a tree and hew it down and to you know, chisel it and, and shave it until it becomes an, an, an image or they'll take molten gold and cover an image and they'll place it on a pedestal, they'll place it in a temple somewhere and they'll be like Aaron after the rebellion uh, while Moses was on the mountain when he pointed to the golden calf. They'll say, here, O Israel, is thy God. And so that's idolatry, and it was addressed by Isaiah. Let me paraphrase what Isaiah said in Isaiah 44. Isaiah is speaking for God in this moment right here, and I love what he said. Is there a God beside me? It's almost as if God was saying, all right, you're worshiping something that you call God, and God is saying, I'm in heaven, and I'm looking at my right hand, and God said, I'm looking around, and he said, I don't see anybody sitting up here beside me that you can call God but me. I mean, we just sang a song that said he has no rival, and he also has, I was about to wake up my preacher in here, that equal, he's no equal. There's no equal to God. And so God said, you can chisel it out, you can make it out of mortar and clay, but he said, he said, there's no God but me. God said, I don't know any. Maybe you do. He said, but I don't. He said, here's what man does. Man makes a graven image. Or he said, or a smith with tongs will work in the fire. Anybody watch Forged in the Fire? 
I kind of like to watch those guys do that forging in the fire. Or a carpenter. I know you know carpenters. They stretch out the ruler and they carve an idol. And then you know what they do? Here's Isaiah said, and then they fall down before it. And then they worship it. But here's what God said. God said the idol doesn't have eyes to see. The idol doesn't have ears to hear. The idol doesn't have a mind to think. It can't comprehend and it can't understand. And yet man in his deception will pray to it and call it God and say this. Here's what Isaiah 44 and 17. Man will say, deliver me for thou art my God. That's the plague of idolatry. Now, the reality is hundreds of idols have been worshipped for thousands of years, right? Hundreds of idols. And from the most primitive of societies to the world's most advanced civilizations. You want to think about that. Often when we think of idolatry, we think of a primitive culture somewhere with a few Canaanites running around, barely clothed, scantily clothed, ignorant in their society, ignorant in their education, ignorant in... Uh, you know, just the cultural advances. But did you know one of the most idolatrous people that we can ever think about was the Roman people who gave us, did you know that even our founding fathers looked at the value and the virtue of the Roman Republic and extracted even some of our judicial system and our governmental system, a measure of it was extracted from the Roman Republic, but the emperor might erect a statue of himself and then ask people to worship it. And so, again, it doesn't matter whether it's been rich or poor, whether it has been uh, uh, whatever ethnic diversity or male or female. People have bowed before, kissed, burned incense, and even sacrificed to an idol. And the reality is it still goes on today, right? There are people groups around the world today that will worship and bow before a brazen image of some kind. Thus, you know what that arrives at, at, the conclu- or, or, or at a point of reference is the power and the, uh, of, of this m- most amazing moment in history when God, the invisible God, revealed himself on Mount Sinai. A people by the name of Israel that had just been birthed out of the womb of Egypt were allowed to see the glory of God. They saw and they heard the audible voice confirming that their God was not just the imagination of man. It wasn't that their prophet just went up on a mountain and came back and conspired the story that he had met with God. God had met with the prophet, and God chose to meet with the people in such a display of his glory that the mountain, come on, a granite mountain began to rock and began to shake because God had stepped out of glory and chose to sit on the mountain for just a brief moment. And he uttered the words of God that became captured uh, first by, on the stone tablet, later upon parchment. But notice what God said. The very first words audi- or audibly heard that day. Here's what God said. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. He said, thou shalt not make an image or a likeness, or anything in heaven or in earth, and you shall not bow down to it. Because God said, I'm the Lord thy God, and I'm a jealous God. The first of the ten commandments, the first three of the ten, deal directly with idolatry. The one true living God, the creator of all things, reveals himself to a particular people whom he then empowers to be his witnesses. 
So the Jewish people are chosen to live in a region where there is a, a plurality of gods around them, but they're going to cast the light that's going to shine into the darkness to hopefully show the Gentiles that there are no gods but Yahweh God. God chose that particular group, the people of Israel. And the Lord even said this, You're to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul and strength, and Him only shalt thou serve. And when God was about to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land, the Torah, with the law of Moses, gave very explicit and sometimes even brutal, what we would call, as we look at it from our perspective, instructions to the nation of Israel in dealing with the idolaters that possessed the land of what's called Canaan. There were seven nations dwelling in that land, and all seven of them were idolatrous. And God gave strict instruction because not only did they worship idols, not only did they burn incense to pagan deities, but some, not all, but some of these nations actually practiced the detestable practice called child sacrifice. Let me go ahead and read and take you into the passage of Scripture where God is addressing this for the nation of Israel as they're about to enter in to the promised land. Look at Leviticus 18 and 3 for just a moment. Let's read this real quickly if we can. After the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I shall bring you, you shall not do, neither shall you walk in their ordinances. How many know that's a very explicit command? God said, what you see them do, he said, you are not to emulate their practices. Why? Because look at the 21st verse. He said, thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech. I'll explain that in just a few moments of time. And then also, again, in Deuteronomy chapter number 12, where this is in one sense being repeated. Additional instruction is given to Israel. He said, take heed to yourself that thou be not ensnared. How I many know it was a snare for Israel? By following them. Who is them? The Canaanites. After that they be destroyed from before thee. And that thou inquire not after their gods. Saying how did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. So let me just stop for a moment. God is now saying to Israel. Even if you practice strong Warfare, annihilation, hard for us to comprehend, but we have to understand the culture and the purpose behind it. God said, even when if the, all the Canaanites are destroyed or driven out and you see leftover residue of where they've been, don't you emulate how they used to live. Because here's what God said about them. Look at this. He said this. He said, even so, I'll do likewise. He said, thou shalt not do unto the Lord thy God for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth. God said, which I hate have they done to their gods. They even, their own sons and daughters, the offspring out of their own seed and the womb of their women, they have burned in the fire to their gods. Now, did you know some of these idols are actually named in Scripture? Baal. Molech, Ashtoreth are some. And when you study idolatry in that region, let me say this. You'll notice that, 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 that those, it's not just those three gods or goddesses, but when idolatry spread to other regions, the name of the god might change slightly, the image might change slightly, but often it originates from a singular point. So we can kind of use this interchangeably slightly. Did you know in the ancient city of Carthage, a recent archaeological discover, discovery uncovered. Listen to this. 20,000 urns filled 
with the incinerated remains of the bones of children that have been offered and sacrificed to their God. Let me give you a couple of images, and these are not the explicit images because these are just drawn images. And this is just a drawn image of what somebody believes that perhaps Molech. Molech was actually called out by name as the god of one of the Canaanite tribes that Moses is warning Israel. I believe it was the Ammonite gods. So here is a picture image of someone climbing up a stairwell to offer in sacrifice. What the historians tell us is that that would heat up so hot that that brazen image would be so hot that the child would be burning uh, as it was placed. Now, I told you there's going to be some things that were explicit now as it would place, be placed upon it, and then the child would actually roll into the cavity of the belly of the actual idol uh, and be consumed in the fire. Thus, he said, they passed their children through the fire. Let's go to the next one real quickly, which is, again, uh, another artist's rendering of something similar as well. And this is a rendering of what even the children of Israel, perhaps because they fell into. Did you know the children of Israel fell in to child sacrifice? If anybody's familiar with the term hell, which comes in the Greek in Gehenna, which is taken from the Valley of Hinnom, and the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem was called a Topheth. And a Topheth is a place where they burned children and sacrificed to gods. And so this is an image of perhaps what might one of those would have been not that far distant from the temple where God was to be worshipped. So let's turn over just real quickly, and there's another. This is actually an image, once again, of an artist's render, what he thinks something might have looked like. And this last one, though, real quickly, let me put it, because this is an actual image of the goddess Tenet, who is uh, possibly Ashtoreth in another name, but she was the goddess of Carthage, where I mentioned previously. Carthage was a very civilized society, yet they offered thousands of children in sacrifice to this deity. Now, when you study this very quickly, what are the reasons? Why would, what would move parents to give their children in sacrifice to an idol? Let me go ahead and give you some of the reasons. Cultic prostitution, number one. What's that, Pastor Brown? What's cultic prostitution? Did you know cultic prostitution was in some of these temples? Prostitution was practiced in worship to God. Let me give you an example. Are y'all with me out here today? I mean, can I just go ahead and preach? I've got a lot to say today, so you got to stay with me. Did you know in the ancient religion of Baal worship, Baal was the male god, Ashtoreth was the female god. And it was the belief of the Canaanites that one controlled the rain, the other one controlled the fertility of the land. And so to incite or to elicit a response of rain upon their soil, they created temples with prostitutes. And so the men worshipers would go to the temple, choose a prostitute, engage in a sexual practice in hopes that it would be pornographic to the God and it would cause him to want to have sexual intercourse with the female deity, Ashtoreth, and thereby producing rain and fertility on the land. And if that happens for year after year, eventually there's going to be unwanted children. And so do you know what the, what, how do you deal with all of these unwanted children? Erect another God or idol and burn those children and sacrifice to that altar or to that God. Let's go farther. Number two, the reasons why. 
History records the reasons why those cultures practiced child sacrifice. Number two was to avert personal or national crisis. So the family found themselves in crisis, they might offer up one of their children in sacrifice. Or if the nation, uh, like, like war, it was about war. You can read this in 2 Kings chapter 3. The king of Moab was in war against Israel, and they felt like they were going to be defeated, and the king of Moab offered his eldest son through the fires to a pagan god to avert a crisis. Number three, personal fortune or vows. A sacrifice to the gods might accompany a vow or a request. Let me give you an example. I heard the Sunday school class in here talking about Jacob this morning. Jacob made a vow at Bethel. Does anybody remember that? When he pillowed his head on the stone and he met the God of Abraham, he said when he woke up, he said, God, if you'll bring me back to this place, he said, I'll give you a tithe of all that I possess. Now, so in, that's similar to what a person participating in idolatry might do but they might take one of their own children and slaughter it in sacrifice so that their family and their minds could be be could be blessed or favored lastly defective children children with impairments children with birth defects handicaps uh, at Carthage one of the urns contained the bones of a child and the inscription above it was that a father had offered his son because it was, I believe it was, uh, it was deaf or mute, one of the two, and he did so in hopes that if he offered this child, he would then get a child later born without birth defects. It's hard for us to fathom, isn't it? It's difficult. It's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult for us to grasp that someone could be so depraved as to resort to this type of worship. But maybe, remember what I said last week when I said, maybe we've got the word, and it's not a political word at all. You say, Pastor, what, is there a core? Is there something that we could say? Is there something behind it? The point I was making last week, the point I'm making this week is that it's spiritual deception. We believe in fallen angels who are deceivers of men, Right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul, I'll put it on the screen real quickly. Paul said this, the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice the devils. And let's put Psalms, if we can, just real quickly. Psalm 106, verse 35 to 38. Let's read it real quickly. He said they were about Israel. They were mingled with the heathen. They learned their works. He said they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. There's that word snare. It caught them. Look at 37. And they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto what? So the word of God begins to give us a revelation. Because behind every idol is a what? Is a devil, a demon spirit that's longing to be worshipped by the hands of men. And it's a bloodthirsty demon that doesn't care and they want our offspring. And so it goes on, he said, unto devils. In 38, I think I also included on there. And they shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and daughters. And so you and I, as we understand the scriptures, the apostle John said this. He said, the whole world lies in darkness. The Apostle Paul said this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not. And so I made this point previously, and I want to make it again, and that's why how people that, on, uh, apart from this cause that we're going to talk about here in just a few moments, might, we might call them good people. And yet they could do something that you and I could call horrific, and we can say, how? Because of a spirit of deception. Because a demonic spirit can blind their minds until they are no longer thinking clearly with a God consciousness so here's where I am right here today 
This is where I'm going to make my pivot. And this is where I'm going to make my transition. And this is where I'm going to begin to make some points that, that are more difficult. See, we're looking at ancient history now. And you can look, and we're, most of the time, many of us are willing to put on the lens and look at, at, at history, historical events. But we're unwilling at times to look at things that are happening right under our noses. And that's what I want to talk about today. My question is, is it fair or is it accurate to say that the modern practice of abortion is akin to child sacrifice? That's a fair question. So now it's a fair question. Or even does it have a similar root or a similar demonic deception? Now anytime I as a pastor stand in front of you and I deal with this very delicate subject matter, I want you to know in my heart I am so conflicted at times because there could be somebody under the sound of my voice that maybe had an abortion, and yet I'm here pre preaching, I'm preaching love and grace. I am. Just because I'm telling the truth does not mean that I'm not motivated by love and grace and by forgiveness, and by healing, and by kindness. But I also know that we fight against principalities and powers. And the enemy wants to blind your mind to the truth. And I've got to find this careful balance. I don't want to be seen as that angry pastor screaming at the darkness and not giving any validity to the things that I'm saying. I want to be seen as that pastor that is horrified at the things that we see and we learn, but is also compassionate. And loving and knowing that God is gracious and he's merciful and he heals and he restores. Come on, somebody. Thank God for his great grace. So it's a fine balance that we must maintain. But now listen, the message says don't close your eyes. And so I, in the last few, week, a few days, in my study, this is not a message about the facts and the figures of abortion. You can go do that on your own. This is simply about making a contrast and then see if it is a comparable thing to be able to say that the ancient practice of child sacrifice is akin to the modern practice of abortion. That's the thing that I'm trying to bring because I think that's the spiritual side behind it that's not going to be in the news. It's not going to be said in the Supreme Court but that's the thing that we as believers, we have, the, we have the lens of Scripture. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. Are y'all with me? Unlocking to us the mysteries of the spirit world. Did y'all hear what I'm saying? I said unlocking to us the mysteries of the spirit world. That we can see beyond. That's why Paul said we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. But with principalities and powers. The people that are promoting abortion, in one sense, they are not our enemy. And someone participating in one sense is not our enemy because we're waging our warfare against a demonic power that's blinded their minds to the truth of the Word of God. So we have to maintain this careful balance. But we're going to go ahead and put some images up. And I'm only going to show about six what are graphic. And a couple of these I chose. I may have not chose the proper ones on their pixels. So they might be a little bit distorted. But I want to just go ahead and bring it up here today just real quickly. There's the aborted... A baby of a 24 to 26 week old baby, just real quickly. I'm not going to talk about this. I think the picture itself, the picture itself speaks. Let's go a little bit farther. We'll let these pictures speak for just a moment. Did you know that there are websites 
that, are, that promote abortion that, that scream out against pastors and others who use picture images to tell the truth about abortion. But I thought there was an old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words. Let's go a little bit far. I am going to tell a little bit about some of these real quickly. And these are just images, and you can't see them very well, but you can just see the different sizes. These were discovered in an abortion clinic, not here in the United States, but in Thailand, this picture and the next one, because they were not disposed of properly, which means they were not burned in the incinerator. It's to the second right here. Now, it's bright in here, it's dark here, so it's hard to see, but it's hard to fathom, right? It's hard to fathom. That this is happening all across, not only the United States, but the known world. I'm going to go to this fifth one. There's only seven images total. Real quickly, this is Malachi. My grandson's name is Malachi. Let me tell you a little bit about his story for just a moment. He was discovered in 1993 in an abortion, what they call abortion mill in Dallas, Texas. Frozen in a jar. And he was taken to a... uh, an OBGYN doctor who re-put his little body back together. Him and others were found. And they were discovered by the priests for life. And the priests for life used this as a point of reference to hopefully try to speak to this generation. And they prayed because the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he that, or that, that, that was now dead yet speaketh. Talking about the blood of Abel. Do you all remember that? Remember how Abel was dead, but the Bible says his voice still spoke to God. His blood spoke and cried out. So they chose to name this little boy Malachi. You know why they chose to name him Malachi? Because Malachi meant my messenger. And if they could flash that image somewhere on a computer screen or put it on a billboard, maybe it would be enough to deter someone that was contemplating abortion. So Malachi is dead. Yet he still speaks. He's been buried in the graveyard or the cemetery for the innocents in Dallas, Texas. Let's go. I think I got two more. And this one is the one that just grabbed my. That looked like my children. They're strong words, church family. It's strong. This is a modern day genocide. And it's happening all around the world. You know why I'm grieved today even beyond because Christians, we close our eyes. This is just another channel on our remote that we quickly skip over. This is the last image. Before it goes up there, Angie, let me prelude it. I didn't create this last image. It was already another website produced it. I'm not saying this is factual. I'm saying this was the question that I was making in my soul as I was preparing this message. This last one, just real quickly. It says here, they said abortion is child sacrifice. Mine would say, is abortion child sacrifice? And here's a picture image of one of that pagan deity, Molech, and what a priest would have looked like when he was about to throw those children into the burning cavity of that god. And then here's the picture of a 22-week-old aborted, you can call it fetus, I'll call it child. And then Ezekiel spoke to the children of Israel and said, you took them, your own sons and daughters, and you sacrificed them 
and cause them to pass through the fire. We can shut that down. Let me say this. I'm going to share with you a few things in closing. Can I have your undivided attention for about 10 minutes today to finish this message? Let's, this is not about facts or figures. Somebody bring me a tissue just real quickly. Somebody stand that up here real quickly. This is not about facts and figures. Thank you. But let me give you the reality. You know what the number one reason for abortion around the world? It's sexual promiscuity. That's what it is. So it's not just a woman. I know it's, they call it a woman's right to choose. A man has a choice. Quit sexually advancing on women who are not your spouse that you're trying to create a family with. Stop it. Right there. Listen to this real quickly. Do you remember cultic prostitution? Cultic prostitution, remember that? What we talked about? Sexual promiscuity. Abortion is the backup for contraceptive failure. Number two, these are the reasons why, and I'm going to make this, uh, I guess I'm going to make this correlation. I've got to be very careful. I'm getting ahead of myself. To, this is the reason why in today's culture that people have abortion, to avert crisis or gain success through fulfilling a vow. Today, many, that was what it was in Carthage, I'm sorry. But today, many times, a woman or a young girl faces an unwanted pregnancy. Her career seems threatened. Perhaps her reputation or her education or her future because she's going to have to go from in life change from single to motherhood in order to avert that crisis or the consequence of the unwanted pregnancy she aborts. Number three, the other reasons for abortion are defective children. In ancient times, they were sacrificed. Today, modern ultrasound often detects handicaps in the child, the unborn child. And did you know many doctors and medical practitioners urge the woman to abort that pregnancy? So here's my opinion. In my personal opinion, it is not far-fetched or it is not an extreme religious ideology or position to compare ancient child sacrifice with abortion. That's my opinion today. Let me go farther. Dr. Mosca, who is that? I don't know, but it's his quote I'm going to give you here today. He writes about child sacrifice as he concluded his doctoral dissertion. Here's what he said. It is impossible to deal with this subject, child sacrifice, not abortion, child sacrifice. It is impossible to deal with this subject at any length without coming to terms with the human dimension. How could a culture that is so well-developed morally, so intellectually and materially tolerate, tolerate so horrific a custom? How could sophisticated people sanction what seems to be such a barbaric practice for such a long time. How at the most critical level. Could human parents. Bring about the destruction. Of their own child. End quote. I think we could say this. We could ask the same question. Of the modern practice of abortion. In my personal opinion. It is because of satanic deception. Don't close your eyes. That's what I'm asking you. Pastor, you're up in my business now. The phone just dinged. It's noon. i got to hurry up and go out to lunch. I probably ruined your lunch today, and I'm okay with that because our eyes have been closed too long. 
too long while we sit in our four walls shouting at the darkness, unwilling to do anything for the glory of God and for the good of humanity. And so, here's in my personal opinion, a demon spirit has bound and is blinding the minds of men and women. So I'm closing today. You said, Pastor, you said at the end of the message you would give us a closing text. Here it is. One verse. We're going to extract something right out of it. Leviticus 20 and 4. Let's put it up there real quickly. Now, remember I told you God had given brutal instruction to the Israelites, to those that practiced idolatry and especially child sacrifice. So I'm not referencing that, but notice what he said. He said, if the people of the land do in any way hide their eyes. The church, many in the church, we're guilty of closing our eyes and not doing our part to stand against this evil. Let me go as I conclude today. You say, Pastor, what can we do? I'm going to give you these things closing today. There'll be no more. There'll be one final altar call of us to stand up and to pray because that's what we're going to do in this house to conclude this message. Number one, promote abstinence. The people that claim they want abortions rare are the people that run Planned Parenthood and yet then they want abortion to be a business. So we know that's a lie. They're saying they want it rare, but then they want their businesses to thrive as well. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And the people that claim that they want abortions to be rare will not stand up and promote abstinence in any capacity. But listen, 90% of all abortions would cease tomorrow if sexual abstinence outside of marriage. Number two, promote compact ministries and others like them who offer maternity care. If you've got somebody in your family that you, or someone you know about, tell them there are alternatives. Show them. Go online. Compact Family Services right here in the great state of Arkansas who will come alongside of that young woman and help her through that pregnancy. And she'll be better nine months from now than she is right now. Healthier, stronger, more established, and making better decisions. Number three, encourage adoption. Did you know for every child that's aborted, there's a family, a barren couple somewhere who would be willing to adopt that unplanned child. Number four, I believe that you need to give whatever support that you can to girls slash women who are in crisis. Come on. We've got to be more willing to show love to someone that perhaps made a decision and the pregnancy it was not the choice, it was the consequence of the sexual intercourse. And so therefore, we can encourage them because you know what? Love never fails. If I can say this today, stop waiting for a government program to come alongside. God may have brought you alongside somebody to offer existence. What would happen if all of us said, I'm going to reach out to a young mother in crisis? Or a young lady who is not married but is pregnant. What would happen? What seeds of love would be sown? Number five, quit closing your eyes at the ballot box. 
Yes, I said it. You wanted a little attachment of a political emphasis. There it is. Quit closing your eyes at the ballot box because your vote does make a difference. It does make a difference. I'm going to say this with a clear conviction. Support candidates and the political parties that are pro-life. That's, yes, I said it. Write a letter, call the news, call the sheriff. I don't care. I sold myself out a long time ago. Stop supporting both candidates and the demonic party that promotes abortion. Right there. I don't care. I didn't ask for your vote. I ain't running for an office. I'm just coming along to tell you, I wish it wasn't a political party system so you could just look at the individual, but unfortunately, that's what's been granted to us. That's what's been given to us. And I'm telling you, I, I grieve, I grieve when Christians, they close their eyes to this subject at the ballot box. Number six, be patient. What does that mean? Wait? No, steadfast, immovable. The society must change its values before the practice of abortion will fade into history. And so even if the practice was illegal and all judges and laws were pro-life, the practice would continue. It would. Because until the heart of the people within the society change, the practice is going to continue. So we're going to have to be patient. Is that right? We're going to have to be patient. And lastly, stand up with me today. If you would, join me at the altar, every person who's willing to add their agreement for one closing prayer on one of the most difficult messages that I found myself preaching in all my 23 years of pastoral ministry. Say, Pastor Brown, where did you gain the spark? This has been happening for a long, long time. Pastor Brown, you know that you've talked about this here and there, bits and pieces, sometimes even entire messages over the course of the latter 15 years as your pastor. Because I was like you, and I watched the, I watched the, uh, the things that took place with the Kavanaugh hearing. And I made this statement last week, and I'm going to reiterate it to you today. It was never about what potentially might have happened to Miss Ford. It was never the root cause of that drama that unfolded in front of the eyes of the American Republic but it was about abortion. That was what it was about because there's a fear in those that want to promote it that, that the court could tilt right. You know this. I'm preaching to the choir and that, that perhaps Roe versus Wade would one day be overturned. And if that were to happen, let me just tell you, that wouldn't stop abortion. It would just send it back to the states. That's all it would do. And we're a long, long, long way from that happening. Just to be honest, just it doesn't matter who was appointed. But with God, all things are possible. Amen. But you say, Pastor, what can we do? Here's what you can do in closing, with, apart from the six things that I just mentioned. Bind in prayer. That's what nobody can do for us. Did you know there are other civic organizations? They can pick it for us. They can, they can go down and go around abortion clinics or stand in the courthouse square. They can do all that. There's all kinds of, of anti-abortion groups that are not spiritual but there's one thing they can't do they can't bind the devil in the name of Jesus because they might start exercising that name and that demon says Jesus I know and Paul I know but who are you but when an anointed child of God lifts up his or her voice and begins to what would happen if Christians around these United States stopped closing our eyes
and left our eyes open and we started binding in the name of Jesus that demonic spirit. And I'm telling you, church family, things can change by the power of God. Would y'all join me in prayer as our closing prayer? Father, we love you. And God, I've asked.